I would really commend the Stephen ministry to you. Last, last fall, I got stuck on an issue in my life, and so I requested a Stephen minister, and I uh, met with, with a man for about uh, several, several months, and it was just a wonderful, wonderful help to me, and uh, God really used that in my life. So I would encourage you, if you have a desire to uh, serve in that way or if you need, need help in that. Well, I recently read about an incident that happened in the 1930s. It was in Detroit. Uh, these three young men uh, got on a bus, and they decided that they were going to pick a fight with a man who was sitting by himself in the back of the bus. And so they began insulting him, <clears throat> but the man just ignored him. And the insults got uglier and meaner, and the man just didn't say a word. So finally, when he got to his, his bus stop where he was getting off, he stood up, and it turned out he was quite a bit bigger and quite a bit more muscular than these guys had thought he was. And without saying a word, he pulled a card out of his, out of his pocket, and he handed it to them on his way out the, the bus door. And as the bus drove off, these three young men gathered around this business card, and this is what they read. Joe Lewis, boxer. Okay. In case you don't know, Joe Lewis was the uh, uh, heavyweight boxing champion of the world from 1937 to 1949. And uh, uh, a guy named John Dickerson uh, cited this incident in the life of Joe Lewis as an illustration of one aspect of humility. And so if you show humility to another person, it doesn't mean you have no power. It doesn't mean you have no status. It doesn't mean being passive. Uh, as a matter of fact, it mainly means that you are withholding your power. You are refusing to exert your power and your status merely for your own good, but rather you employ it for the good of other people. So those three, three young guys on that bus, they were very glad that Joe Lewis didn't employ his power and his skill to defend his honor. That's a core aspect of humility. In a few minutes, we're going to see that this willingness to lay aside his status and to restrain his power for our good, that's at the heart of the humility of Jesus. Today, we're going to look at Philippians 2. It's a very familiar passage, but I want us to hear it with fresh ears today. Uh, Paul's going to encourage the church, the entire church, to adopt the humility of mind that we see in Jesus himself toward each other. Last week we saw the, the chapter one, Paul said, live in a manner worthy of the gospel. And we saw that that involves experiencing the gospel, experiencing it so deeply that we have this, this common unity. We stand firm in the gospel and together as one person, we advance the gospel in our community and in this world. Today's passage follows up on that and says, if you really want that type of unity, you have to have humility. You have to have the very humility that we saw in Jesus Christ. And so I want us to read this passage. If you're able, uh, please stand with me. I'm going to read from Philippians 2, <clears throat> verses 1 through 11. <clears throat> Paul writes this, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. 
Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in, the, found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. Have a seat. As you may have noticed, that's a very dense passage. Uh, Theologically and conceptually, it's very rich. And so uh, we're not going to try to define and focus in on every single term that might wear all of us out, but we're going to try to see the big idea. We're going to try to see Paul's uh, flow of thought so that we'll have this, this intuitive grasp of what he's challenging us to do, what God is challenging us to do in terms of humility. And so I want us to first look at verse 5 and the the core challenge right in the center of this passage. The challenge in verse 5 is to adopt the humility of mind which was in Christ Jesus. And notice that this is a command to the entire church, okay? The only way this works is that if we, broadly speaking, all of us adopt the humility of mind which was in Christ Jesus. Verse 5, Paul writes, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. The ESV translates it this way, have this mind among yourselves, which was in Christ. And this is a corporate command to the entire church, adopt the humility of mind, which is in Christ Jesus. And so the big idea is this, if you have the humility of mind that was in Christ Jesus, and I have the humility of mind that was in Christ Jesus, and we show that humility of mind to one another, we're going to experience humility in our relationship, and we're going to have the type of unity that is essential for the the cause of Christ, for the gospel to go forth. And before we look at Paul's specific commands related to our unity in verses 1 through 4, I want us to to consider Paul's description of Jesus' humility. I I want us to fall in love with the humility that we see in Christ Jesus, because honestly, if we, aren't, if we don't see the power and the beauty of Christ's humility, humility will always seem like something that's optional. It will seem inconvenient, probably seem impossible. It might even seem irresponsible. We say, well, if I show humility to that person, it's just going to enable him to do all sorts of bad behavior. But if we fall in love with the humility of Christ and we conclude it was good enough for Jesus, it accomplished our salvation, therefore it's perfect for me as well. And so that's where I want us to get. So let's look at verses six and six through eight, uh, Jesus' humility. And uh, scholars, people, New Testament scholars would, would agree this is the heart of the book of Philippians. If Jesus really is the person described in these verses, then it makes total sense that Paul would say, for me to live is Christ, 
because of who he is, my life is all about Jesus Christ. If he really is who we see in these verses, it makes total sense that Paul would say, I count everything to be lost. All my accomplishments, my pedigree, everything, I count it all to be lost for the sake of knowing Christ, not only the power of his resurrection, but the fellowship of his sufferings. And so we read in verses 5 and 6, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who... Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. When it talks about being in the form of God, it doesn't doesn't merely mean that he looked like he was in the form of God. It means he was in very nature God. Uh, The the, uh, NIV captures the sense well when it says that Jesus, being in very nature God, did not regard equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. And so from eternity past, Jesus had the status and the power of God himself. And, and yet he used to, to uh, use his equality, he refused to use his equality with God to his own advantage. And so remember, this is before Jesus became one of us. And so humility is not merely something that Jesus assumed when he became a man. From eternity past, Jesus has always been humble. That's why he was willing to lay aside his heavenly prerogatives. Instead of thinking only of himself, verse 7 tells us that Jesus emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and being made in likeness of men. People have long debated, okay, what does it mean that it says he emptied himself? What, what did he empty himself of? Did he empty himself of his divinity? Uh, did he empty himself of some of his divine qualities? Well, if you look closely, Paul doesn't say he emptied himself of anything. He says he emptied himself by doing something. He emptied himself by taking the form of a bondservant. And the term form there is the same that we, same uh, word we saw in verse 6. Just as Jesus from eternity past existed in the form of God, he was in very nature God. Jesus took the form of a bondservant. He became in very nature a bondservant. He didn't just act like a bondservant. He was a bondservant. And so he told his disciples, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. The Son of Man came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so uh, without ceasing to be God, Jesus became, Jesus was made in the likeness of men. Look at verse 8. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so he identified so fully with humanity uh, by taking on flesh and blood. It says Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient. Humility always involves obedience. Pride uh, eventually results in disobedience. And so because Jesus was humble, he pursued obedience. And for him, his assignment, his mission was to die on the cross as our substitute. And so out of obedience, he became obedient to the point of death. And Paul says just very specifically, even death on a cross. In the Roman Empire, there were three official forms of execution. One was crucifixion, uh, the second was decapitation, and the third was being burned alive. Crucifixion was the most shameful, it was the most brutal form of execution. The one who existed in very nature God humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
And we don't cringe. We don't, we, don't, we don't just recoil when we hear Jesus died on the cross. But in the first century, they did. That's why it was scandalous to Jews. It was foolishness to the Gentiles that the Messiah was crucified on a cross. The most practical thing that you and I can do to cultivate humility is to fix our eyes on Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and then he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Unless we are smitten, unless we are absolutely smitten with the love and the humility of Jesus, uh, we won't have a vision for cultivating humility in our, in our lives. We'll always find a reason why humility is it's impractical, it's impossible, and sometimes we'll think it's irresponsible. God would never expect me to be humble to that person. God would never demand that of me. But all our arguments melt away when we truly understand the humility of Jesus for us. Carl Henry asked the question, how can anyone be arrogant standing before the cross? How can anyone be arrogant standing before the cross? And so the best thing, the most practical thing we can do if we want to cultivate humility, I mean, if we want to love humility and pursue it with all heart is to fix our, our eyes on Jesus, especially the cross. And so humility really isn't a function of your relationship with the other person. Humility is a function of your relationship with God. Those who love God with all their heart, soul, and mind, they love their neighbor as themselves. They, 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 they cultivate humility as an expression of love. You know, I spent a good bit of time this week thinking about the, the people that I know that are just obviously humble. And one thing that is true of the people I know that are humble is, uh, is just that, that they cannot stop talking about Jesus Christ, specifically what Jesus Christ has done for them. And they often talk uh, with emotion in their voice and sometimes with tears in their eyes about what Jesus has done for them, the mercy he's shown them, the grace that they didn't deserve, that Jesus has lavished upon them. Like Paul in, in 1 Timothy 1, they just can't get over the fact that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And they would say, including me. And for the record, the people I have in mind, these are not people that have lived easy, bright, shiny lives. Some of these people have experienced great tragedy, great hardship in their lives, but their hardship doesn't define them. What defines them is the love of Christ. The love of Christ controls them. And there are people that have put on the, the humility of Christ because they find it compelling. It makes more sense to be humble than to be arrogant. They're the type of people that say, how can I be arrogant toward other people? When I have stood before the cross and said, Jesus, on the basis of your death, your obedience, will you forgive me of my sins? And so these are people that are compelled to have this attitude in themselves that was also in Christ Jesus. And so that's where we all need to be. We need to get to that place where we are enamored with humility and the love of Jesus himself. We're not really going to take time to look through verses 9 through 11. We, we looked at these verses on Easter morning. 
Um, but these verses, in these verses, Paul writes, since Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, God highly exalted him. And so you find throughout the Bible that those who exalt themselves, God humbles. Those who humble themselves, God exalts. And so that dynamic was in play in the life of Jesus. Since Jesus humbled himself more fully than anybody else, God exalted him higher than anybody else. God highly exalted him. Well, let's return to verses 1 through 4 to see how Paul urges us to imitate the humility of Jesus in very specific ways. And in verse 1, we're going to see that, that Paul uh, mentions four things that believers commonly experience in Christ. And sometimes we experience these things directly, directly from God, experiences with his Holy Spirit. Many times these things are mediated through other people. We experience the things mentioned in this verse through others in the body of Christ. And the logic we see here is that if you've experienced these things, could be translated since you've experienced these things, now it makes sense that you would show them these same things to others, that they might experience them too. And so in verse 1, we read, Therefore, in light of the fact that we need to live in a manner worthy of the gospel, in light of the fact we need unity to experience the gospel and to advance the gospel, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, and there is, it could be translated since there is encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, and there is. If there's any fellowship of the Spirit, and there is. If there's any affection and compassion. And so Paul is piling it up and saying, just, just remember what you've experienced. Let me just highlight one of them. He says, if there is, uh, first, the first one there, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if you put your faith in Christ, if you've experienced the new birth, you have experienced a type of encouragement, a type of consolation that sustains you through this life. If you put your faith in Christ, this is what God says to you. This is the courage that you take through life, the comfort. God has said to you, even though you have offended me times without number, even though you have been uh, inconsistent in your walk with me, even though you have, have vowed to do right and not done it, I am never going to hold it against you. I am never going to throw it in your face. I am never going to make you pay for it. What you deserve fell on Jesus Christ. And so we carry this, this, this consolation, this encouragement throughout our lives. And it's the courage we have to live in freedom, free from sin and free from guilt and shame. It's, it's just the encouragement in our lives. And we would never experience that unless Jesus uh, humbled himself to the point of death. Uh, if he hadn't humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, we wouldn't experience encouragement, comfort, fellowship, tenderness, or compassion. And Paul's argument, again, is that those who've received these blessings should give them to others. Look at the challenge in verse 2. He says, in light of what we've experienced in Christ, Paul says, make my joy complete. Have you ever written somebody and said, hey, I want you to do this. I want you to do this so that I will have the maximum amount of joy. That's what Paul says. He says, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. He wanted them to know. This, this would pull on their heartstrings. He wanted to, them to know how satisfied, and joy is a deep satisfaction in God and his ways. He wanted them to know how satisfied he would be if they demonstrated humility. 
And that, that was a powerful motivation in their lives. Paul's joy was so aligned with God's joy that he could say this. Paul says his joy would be complete if they were of the same mind. Doesn't mean they agree on every detail in every issue. It means that they all had the mind of Christ. They all thought the same way, the same deep structures of thought that Jesus had. And so this is the same term Paul used in verse 5 when he said, have this attitude or have this mind in yourselves, which was in Christ Jesus. And so again, if, if you and I each have humility of mind that was in Christ Jesus, we will show humility toward one another, and we will have unity with one another. They were to maintain the same love in the sense of having this, this common commitment. And so this is broadly the whole church, this common commitment to patience, kindness, forgiveness. He says they were to be united in spirit and intent on one purpose. This is the type of radical unity we've been talking about the past couple weeks, the type of unity that exists in a gospel-centered fellowship, a gospel-centered congregation in which everyone is seeking first God's kingdom, God's righteousness. We're experiencing the gospel. We want to see it, it advance into the lives of others. And then in verses 3 and 4, Paul urges Christ-like humility. And uh, how, do, how does this sound to you? Do nothing. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. I'm aware that some people hear these verses and they think, well, it sounds like I, I should just totally neglect myself and just uh, allow anybody to do anything for me because, that, because I, I just have to take it. Well, let me, let me just quickly say what this doesn't mean, okay? And so this, this humility of mind Paul's talking about here doesn't mean you have no boundaries. Boundaries are good. It doesn't mean you have to do everything everybody else wants you to do, okay? Humility of mind doesn't mean that you should never pay attention to your own well-being. No, many scriptures say you should pay attention to yourself, spiritually, emotionally, physically. Yes, you should take care of yourself. Humility of mind doesn't mean that you never say no, okay? So that humility of mind doesn't mean those things. We agree on that? But humility of mind does mean something, Okay, I think you'll agree with me. It's possible to be a person that has great boundaries. It's possible to be a person who takes very good care. Of you. you pay a lot of attention to yourself, spiritually, physically, emotionally. You're a person who can get really, really good at saying no. You can do all those things and still be a self-centered, conceited person. Okay, so humility of mind does mean something. What does it mean? Well, I think at the core of it, uh, humility of minds mean, means that you willingly regard other people as more important than yourself. In specific circumstances, you willingly say, I'm going to set aside what I want. I'm going to pay more attention to what the other person wants. It has to be willing. If somebody forces you to do something, that's not humility on your part. And so you willingly, in specific circumstances, consider yourself more, others more important than yourself. And this is very natural for, for most of us. 
uh, we very naturally ask the question, what is best for me and mine in this circumstance? I mean, we just naturally, what is best for me and mine? And so that's why there's so much road rage. That's why political discourse is so toxic. That's why people hold grudges for months and years and decades. We very naturally become obsessed with what's best for me and mine. Like toddlers, we get outraged when we don't get what we want, okay? But when we have the humility of mind, the same radical humility of mind that was in Christ Jesus, we ask a very different question. We ask the question, uh, what is best for the other person? We don't merely look out for our own personal interests. We also are concerned about the interests of others. And so let me just give a, this is a trivial example, but let me, let me, it might get us into the topic. You're driving down the road beside someone and the lanes are about to merge, okay? And so instead of thinking, I'm just going to put in, I'm just going to accelerate a little bit and, and get there first, you say, well, maybe that person beside me is having a rough day. Maybe they need something good or something convenient to happen to them today. So I'm going to, I'm going to drive the speed limit and I'm going to let them move in in front of me you know, it really doesn't matter if I get there five seconds earlier than the other, the other person. And so that's trivial, but that's humility of mind. You actually think about the other person. What if you took that mindset into your home and in your interaction with the people you live with? You ask, not what do I want, but what is best for the other people? You carry that mindset into the workplace with you. You carry that mindset into the church you carried into every team you're a part of? What if you take that humility of mind? The type of humility Paul is advocating here, I hope you'll agree with me, this is an expression of strength. It's not an expression of weakness. This is not being passive. It's not letting other people walk. This is intentionally deciding I'm going to consider others as more important than myself. This is strength. This is Joe Lewis strong. This is Jesus Christ strong on the cross in a very intentional, strong, powerful way, putting the needs of others ahead of ourselves. Like Jesus, we willingly seek to serve and not be served. And so this week, I want to encourage you to to test drive humility in two specific ways. Uh, Number one, I want you to, to identify one other person, okay, just one person uh, to whom you can show uh, this type of radical humility, okay? And I would encourage it to be somebody that you see pretty much every day. It might be somebody you live with. might be the person sitting beside you. Uh, it might be a friend. could be a coworker. But just, just continually, habitually, intuitively ask the question, what is this other person's need right now? How can I defer to the other person? What does humility look like in this relationship? And uh, you're going to find that 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 question is not always uh, easy to answer. It will require discernment and wisdom to know what humility looks like in your relationship with that other person. And so when you find it frustrating, when you find it impossible, let it drive you to Jesus to cry out for his power, his wisdom, his mercy. 
Second, test drive humility in one specific context. I'm talking about one specific grouping of people. So it might be in your neighborhood. It might be on uh, a ministry team. It might be in the workplace. It might be in your family. And so seek to demonstrate genuine, radical, Christ-like humility in that context. And so again, experience how much discernment and how much wisdom it takes to even know what humility looks like. How do you, how do you exercise or, or uh, express humility to somebody that you disagree with? How do you, you exhibit humility uh, towards someone that you're in a conflict with? How do you demonstrate humility uh, when, when you have been wronged by another person? And when you find that tension, notice what it stirs up in you. It might stir up anger, it might stir up bitterness, anxiety, self-righteousness. Again, cry out to God for the desire and the ability to live as a humble person. Can you identify one person and one context in which you can test drive humility? I would encourage you as well to, to talk, with your, talk about your experience with a trusted friend. We need each other in this. This is not easy. This is not, it is simple in some ways, but it is not easy. It can be very complex understanding what humility actually looks like. Talk about the tensions, the joys, the frustration of trying to be humble in a culture of rage, as ours is sometimes called. And I would encourage you to take the long view. Uh, Sustained humility bears fruit over time. 300 years ago, a guy named William Law wrote a book. It was called A, a Serious, you know, they, they really knew how to, how to name books back then. It's called A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. It is a serious book. In his chapter on humility, he wrote this. He says, we may as well think to see without eyes or live without breath as to live in the spirit of religion, meaning to really walk with God without the spirit of humility. And this this slays me every time I read it. He says, although humility is thus the soul and essence of the Christian faith, it is generally speaking the least understood, the least guarded, the least intended, the least desired, the least sought after of all the virtues. I first stumbled across this about 25 years ago, and I still have to say guilty as charged. Guilty as charged. I don't want to be thought of as an arrogant person, heaven forbid, but I don't know how often I'm passionate about pursuing and cultivating and understanding humility. And yet I say to us, I say to myself, I say to you, why can't we live out what the Bible clearly teaches? Why can't we be a people who fixes their eyes on Jesus? We, we are so fixed on him. And we so love the power and the beauty of his humility that we have a passion to be humble people. And we pursue it. We don't just wait till we're humbled by circumstances or, or humiliated. And so we, we are passionate about pursuing humility. We have the mind of Christ when it comes to humility. And we consistently, uh, very, very rigorously show humility to one another. And we have the type of humility that produces unity. And that unity helps us live out and advance the gospel. Why can't we be people 
who have humility as a bold declaration that Jesus is Lord and he is worth imitating. Why not? Heavenly Father, we ask that you would would make us to be this type of people. God, broadly across the board, in our our, uh, best moments, in our sanest Uh, times of thinking. We believe Jesus is Lord, and we do believe that he is worthy of being imitated. And so, God, we ask that you would give us uh, just the contrition we need to humble ourselves before you and give us a desire to fix our eyes on Jesus and help us show humility toward one another. God, we pray that you would give us wisdom as we test drive humility this week in relationships and situations. We pray that you would you would teach us. We pray we'd learn deep lessons, lessons that would count for eternity. And God, we believe this is your heart. And so this is what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.